Hello everyone. Today we start a two-part episode. Uh, it's going to be on, is the Bible true? We're going to explain a little bit about that. And then we're also going to give a bunch of evidence of how we know it is true. Um, and pretty much everything that we give, you can look it up. And so you don't have to take our word for it. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the Bible claims to be truth. We see that in Psalm 197, 334, uh, Psalm 119, 142, as well as 151 and 160, uh, John 1034, Romans 220, Romans 91, 2 Timothy 215, and I'm sure there are other places. The Bible also shows us that God does not lie. So he must say the truth. We see that in Numbers 2319. Psalm 31.5, John 14.6, Titus 1.2, and others. This would align perfectly to a God that is morally perfect. Truth is always promoted and called for in Scripture. The Bible calls its reader to chase after truth. Proverbs 12.19 and 22, and Zechariah 8.16. There are two sides to this truth coin, both together would assert to the ultimate standard of truth that there are no arrows, no errors, <laughs> or, or arrows <laughs> within its pages, that it's inerrant, and its affirmations are true, that it's infallible. Okay, so <clears throat> let's look at the inerrant aspect or the inerrant claim. In order for the Bible to be inerrant, which means without error, it should be without contradiction. There are basically two affirmations when it comes to inerrancy. There is the concept of limited inerrancy. That would be scripture is without errors in matters to, of faith and practice, but it allows for errors in science, history, or geography. Now, one major concern or question with this view is where's the line between faith and everything else? And who determines that? Does this mean God was not powerful enough to provide something without errors in the other areas like science and history? How can we trust God in other in other matters if he got things like science and history that we can verify wrong? Often this view sees truth as relative. So it contradicts the verses that say that the Bible is true, as well as the requirements God put in place for the prophets, that if any of their prophecies didn't come true, they weren't speaking his words. Also, this view of the limited inerrancy fosters a buffet style of scripture, where you get to go and pick the parts that you like and just completely ignore the parts that you don't. Another way of looking at inerrancy is full inerrancy. That means that that belief, this take on it, is that the original manuscripts are completely without error <clears throat> in everything that they assert. We can trace up to 99% accuracy to these original documents, which means we're basically looking at the originals through all the different copies that we have. We can piece them together. 
This view of full inerrancy was kept throughout church history until the 1900s. It's completely free from falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Full inerrancy seems to be what an all-powerful God who wants to reveal himself would provide, given the character we see of him throughout scriptures. We should be able to verify this by knowing if there are any contradictions within the Bible. The um, <clears throat> next topic is infallible, and this claim that the Bible is infallible says that all the Bi- all of the Bible affirms in all areas, sorry, let me say that this way, if everything that the Bible affirms in all areas are correct, this can mean culture, history, geography, faith, salvation, relationships, politics, anything, in any area, everything that it affirms is correct. We can verify this by looking at the evidences of scripture to see if they align to what we know of the world. If this is infallible, it leads us to believe that it has divine authority. Now, one big question that always comes up with if the Bible is true or not is, are there contradictions in the Bible? The simple answer is no. Yet, we need to handle this wisely. Instead of dealing with all the apparent contradictions, and we'll work through these as we walk through the different books of the Bible, but for now, we'll go through some principles that will help us decipher or walk through these claims. So, how do we deal with apparent contradictions? To be clear, we do not simply ignore them or say no such thing exists. We research and find out. We start with granting the Bible what we would to any other book. And here are a couple of them. Give the passage the benefit of the doubt. Either I read wrong, or I do not have a complete knowledge of the claim. Remember the context of the culture. It is easier to ask a question than to answer it. Uh, Irregularities of grammar, wrong spelling, do not mean a contradiction. Uh, Two different copies of the Bible do not mean a contradiction. It needs to be at the original manuscript level, which... Again, we can get at 99% accuracy. We need to distinguish between a difference and a contradiction. So a difference contains more or less information, like at the resurrection, Matthew 28, 2-5, and Mark 6, 5. Uh, one, they report one angel, while Luke 24, 4 and John 20, 12 report two angels. The former provided less information, while the latter more. It's not a contradiction. In order to have two, you need one. Contradiction accounts go against each other. Um, Also, we need to not allow for quote-unquote preschool theology to muddle the waters. Sometimes there are complicated answers because theology can go deep. That's not shocking in theology. One unexpected, one explained, unexplained issue does not validate the removal of the whole. So if I do not understand physics, it should not cause me to dismiss science as a whole. These are contradictions that are not really contradictions. That's why they're called them apparent. All that is needed is a little bit of reasoning and these fizzle out pretty quickly. Most contradictions are actually pretty bad and fickle. And these are often the best examples that are provided. And so, Let's go into a couple of of general good uh, tactics to look when somebody presents 
a contradiction. So one is the genre of writing. So be aware of the genre that you're reading in scripture. There is poetry, there's history, letters, figurative, literal, prescriptive, which means a, a command, descriptive, just something that's happening, an example. When the Bible says the sun comes up from the horizon, it is often saying this in a poetic manner and from the perspective of the writer. So it's poetry. You should not take that literally. Yeah, another aspect is flexibility of writing. So we want to try to learn to be aware of different authors' tendencies. In other words, some authors were more focused on chronology. That was their thing. But others are more focused on themes and some generalized and others were more specific. Uh, their personality, the way that they saw things around them as important played into the things that they included. So some authors partially but accurately reported, while others included more details of the same incident. An example of that would be Matthew and Luke's order of the temptations. One focuses on the actual literal order, while the other has a theme and presents the information according to the theme. It doesn't mean that one or the other is wrong. It's just coming from a different perspective. Another aspect is the context of the writing. It's exceedingly important to look at the context, which means where is this verse found? What verses are surrounding it? What are the paragraphs before and after saying? What about the theme of the book in which it's included? What's the style of that book? Um, we may get into that a little later, but <clears throat> all of that is surrounding the supposed contradiction. You have to read the whole section. Just pulling out one or two sentences is actually kind of dangerous. Um, include the whole context to get a full understanding of what the verse is saying. An example of this is actually a little bit comical. Um, some people try to point, point to say 14.1 of Psalm, um, Psalm 14.1, and say, your, your Bible says there is no God. Yeah, actually, they're right. The Bible does say that, but read within the context, the phrase right before it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> so definitely important to include the full context. Another thing that um, can have an effect on our understanding is how numbers are used in the writing. The differences in numbers can usually be traced down to one of three things. So if an author gives a specific account, uh, it's probably going to be a little different from if an author gave a general rounded account or if a scribe miscopied an amount. And we do need evidence on this one. We can't just read a passage and say, oh, I think he just miscopied that because it's different. No. Every time that it's been miscopied, there's the evidence that we can look up and see, oh, it makes sense that the scribe miscopied that right here. So an example of that is Ahaziah was 22, it says in 2 Kings 8.26. And then in 2 Chronicles 22.2, it says that he was 42 when he became king. Well, was he 22 or 42? Well, we can see that the copyist made an error. And some older manuscripts of Second Chronicles have the age of 22. 
Another aspect is mistranslation of writing. Translation from one language to another is not easy, and many times there are words in one language that mean something specific or broad or has several meanings, but it does not translate well to another language. Remember, we're translating Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek to get to our English Bibles, and sometimes they just don't cross over exactly. If you've ever been reading one translation, and someone else has another one, and you're like, oh, mine says this, and mine says that. That's typically a translation. They're trying to capture the original language's meaning, but there was no one English word that caught the whole meaning, and so different translations will pull out a different synonym for that word. An example of some of this mistranslation you can find in Leviticus 11, 13 through 39. In most English copies it says that birds were forbidden and then includes bats. So is this a contradiction? Well, not really. First, the Hebrews did not have our classification of animals at that time. And second, if we look at the Hebrew, the word bird can also mean winged creature, which would include bats. So how do we answer these? It seems best to take the approach of it depends on the person that's asking. You can respond by saying, please give me your best example of a contradiction. And typically, not always, but typically there are two types of people when we hear this question of or claim of contradictions in the Bible. You have the, the easier person, which is a, a genuine person. This person truly wants to know if the contradiction they were told or showed is dealt with or not. After the help, the contradiction is resolved and, and they kind of take that out of their brain and, and they're done with that. They don't bring it up ever again because they know there's a solution. The other person is an insincere person. This person does not care how many contradictions are resolved. They want to hold on to the contradiction in order to not believe the Bible. They value quantity over quality. They will give a bunch of supposed contradictions even if they are obviously flimsy, even if they've heard that they, the contradiction doesn't work. They'll still hold on to it. And the next person that they talk to, they'll bring it up to them just to try to shake the other person. So this person is insincere. They often will ignore answers and simply continue to not believe the truth. This causes them to lose credibility. And since they're basically not being reasonable, they often have the bar raised so high that it is unreasonable and sometimes even illogical. These are often very vocal people, but with a paper-thin foundation. Bloomberg says it well, uh, not a single supposed contradiction has gone without someone proposing a reasonably plausible resolution. End quotes. Every contradiction that has been brought up through the centuries has come with a viable and thoughtful answer to show that it is not in fact a contradiction. So this is important for us to know. A good resource on this is The Big Book of, Big, of Bible Difficulties by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe. There are important aspects to take note of here. First, notice these are not proofs. Evidence points to a conclusion. Is it 100% for sure? No. There is really nothing that is 100% for sure, except death and taxes. <laughs> but is it reasonable? Yes. 
highly likely even. Well, we believe so. Another important thing to note is that with these evidences, we can show pretty confidently that the Bible is true. And if it is true, then its claims also follow through. Readers are called to check out the facts. They're called in Acts 2.22 and 1 Corinthians 15.6. Let's see how this cumulative case actually does. Let's start with some evidence from prophecy. Prophecy is a powerful evidence of God's handiwork in scriptures. God himself says it is a way to verify that it comes from him. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Only he can say the beginning from the end. There's a good deal of prophecy, actually hundreds in scripture, and all those that should be completed have been. Not one has skipped or um, has skipped a beat or been wrong. The Bible claims and shows specific verifiable prophecies. These were given before the event, and so that shows that God is involved. If prophecy is correct, it cannot come from the mind of man. It needs to come from the mind of God. And if this is correct, then it shows that the prophecy is God from from God, <laughs> not that the prophecy is God, the, the prophecy is from God, showing that God is behind the book that contains the prophecy. Prophecy singles out the truth. The Bible was written over hundreds of years. It's important to have this in mind. If God prophesies something in Genesis and it comes to pass in Matthew, that's hundreds of years later. There are two central types of prophecy. There's short-term prophecy that is granted within the lifespan of the author to show the author was true for the people of that generation to know, and long-term prophecy helps later readers. Prophecies have different functions. God demands perfection in prophecy, 100% right, 100% of the time. In Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, Isaiah 41, 21 through 24, and 45, 20 through 21, also Ezekiel 33, 33, and 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Failed prophecies are useless. Any percentage that is wrong makes it useless. For the Christian, this gives us understanding and is a good reminder that God is sovereign in history. World Event History So, these prophecies tell of events that are coming to pass that can be seen by the world. And we'll give a handful. One is the destruction of Tyre. So, Tyre was the capital of the Phoenician Empire. It was called the Queen of the Seas, the most powerful empire of its time. It controlled sea trade, uh, massive walls that had never been breached. It was a very prideful city as well. Ezekiel was written during the exile of Judah. This is during the Babylonian Empire. And Ezekiel 26, 1 through 6, prophesies the destruction of Tyre. Many nations would come against them like waves of the seas. They would break down their walls and their cities. Verses 7 through 11 specifically speaks of Nebuchadnezzar destroying Tyre. He would slay many and break down the towers, and he would take down the daughter villages. These are villages that surrounded the main city. Nebuchadnezzar tried 
for 13 years to siege Tyre like a continuous wave. He just kept on trying and trying and trying. He killed the surrounding villages, but basically failed in capturing Tyre. Tyre was given supplies through their navy and through their island counterpart. The city of Tyre actually has had two parts. There was one part of the city on the mainland and another on, the, on an island that was very, very close. Eventually, the city migrated from the mainland to the island, where they had good walls and a powerful navy. Nebuchadnezzar does conquer the mainland city, but it was basically emptied before he conquered it. He completed all that was prophesied and then returned home, claiming a partial victory. Then we get to verses 12 to 14 of this passage, and it changes the aggressor of Tyre to a plural. It says they. This is pulling back to the many nations, and this is referred back to the beginning of the chapter, to attack Tyre. They would take over Tyre, throw their city into the sea, and demolish Tyre, converting it into a city that would never be used again. Alexander the Great, in 332 BC, goes against Tyre. Tyre basically tried to do the same, had the same mentality. But when Alexander conquered the mainland city, he used the debris of the mainland city and tossed it into the sea, using it to, call, to make a causeway. It was about 1.5 miles long to get to the island. And he basically encompasses the they portion. They used new technology, so to speak, new to them, of catapults, and they fight on the causeway. He conquers their walled city, and he kills all the troops. The women and the children are either killed or sold into slavery. Due to the causeway, the dirt and such has accumulated on the land and caused the old city to sink to the point where there is a reef there now. The only thing that happens on that island now is fishing, and it still occurs. They're still using nets. This is all confirmed to us by secular sources. The city would never be rebuilt again. This one needs to be explained some. Because this is a prophecy. Rebuilt means to be restored or to be returned to its prior existing state. Modern day Tyre is a small time little fishing place. It has not at all, even remotely close, returned to its former glory. You cannot rebuild what is underwater. The old city is underwater. None of the old parts were used, nor was it ever in the same place as the city, because it's underwater. It never again held any prominence, never controlled trade. The current tire does not resemble the old in any way, shape, or form. Zechariah 9, 1-4 confirms this saying, that tire would be destroyed by fire again, which was done by gives us a timestamp, which was several decades after Nebuchadnezzar's siege. And this basically shows us there was still more to come for Tyre in that time, showing the they, in verse 12, from above, is further than Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is a wonderful source of future prophecy. Before we dive into it, let's defend it so that it can be wielded well. The common call against Daniel is not that it is untrue. Instead, there's a call saying it's history, not prophecy. 
So <clears throat> let's look at the argument put forth by Mike Winger in his book, Defending Daniel. Skeptics often jump on Daniel to date it after it was actually done. They claim it was written late about 165 BC, not written by Daniel. They claim it is a forgery. The main reason this is dated this late is because the prophecy is too exact for their comfort. Let's walk through and debunk this faulty reasoning. Prophecy is impossible would be one faulty reasoning. This is undefeatable because it is unreasonable. It's a circular argument. No matter what prophecy is shown as evidence, it is not true because prophecy is impossible. So prophecy is impossible. It's a blind faith position. It's not evaluating the evidence. It's just stating this is what I believe and then making sure that everything else falls into the right category. Another faulty reasoning would be bad history. Now, this is an often used example of bad history is that Belshazzar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's last son, was the last king of Babylon. Skeptics say Belshazzar does not exist. He was just made up. He wasn't in any Babylonian king list, and instead, Nabonidus was the last king. But in 1853, the Nabonidus cylinder was discovered. It was dated before the fall of Babylon, and a portion reads, May it be that I, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, never fail you, and may my firstborn, Belshazzar, worship you with all his heart. And that was from the Nabonidus cylinder. Belshazzar did exist, and another cylinder says that Nabonidus gave his kingship to Belshazzar as a co-regent. That is from... Uh, cylinder two, I think. The skeptic will often say, yes, but this shows Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, not Nebuchadnezzar. That is literally true, but we need to take culture into our minds. The normal use of the word son slash father in that time could be anyone in the lineage. Nebuchadnezzar was the grandfather of Belshazzar. Basically, the answer is prove it. Daniel has really good history showing he was present, like Persians not allowed to break their own laws, or the law being over the king of Babylon, or Babylonians losing to the Medes very quickly, or knowledge of having lions as punishment in this empire, etc. Another one that is used is linguistic arguments. So, Daniel was written in multiple languages. Chapters 1 and 2 and 4 uh, and chapters 8 through 12 were written in Hebrew. Sorry, I said that wrong. Chapters 1 through 2, verse 4, and chapters 8 through 12 were in Hebrew. Chapters 2, verses 4 to 7 were done in Aramaic, and there are also some Greek and Persian words scattered throughout. The claim will say that since it has Greek, it must be written after Alexander the Great, who introduced Greek, so after 332 BC. Now, let's deal with these different arguments, and, and we'll see that it works out just fine. The Persian words. There are only 15 in the whole book, but the details show the details. All 15 words relate to government, politics, offices, etc., and he worked in the Persian government. So six of these 15 words 
are not found anywhere after 330 BC. So there's a dating problem right there. It has to be before that. All 15 are considered old Persian, quote unquote. And if Daniel was written when skeptics claim it would be, it would fit Middle Persian, but it doesn't. So that means it has to be an older date. What about the supposed Greek words? There are. There's three of them. And all of them are musical instruments. And all of them are transliterations. They're not actually Greek. Two of the three are known to have occurred well before 332 BC. And I'm going to try to say these words. So, some foina is used by Pythagoras about 530 BC. Kitharos found in Homer's work in the 8th century BC, and Pisanterin, which is basically not known. So we know that Babylon, before 530 BC, employed Greek workers, slaves, merchants, and mercenaries. Greek pottery was there as well. We cannot rule out Greek instruments. This is just only natural. What about Aramaic? Aramaic was common language in Daniel's time, and a large portion of it wasn't that language. Second century Aramaic is the claim. But newer scholarship show newer discoveries of 5th century doctrine documents in Aramaic. They show it is an old Aramaic. To be more specific, it is an imperial Aramaic, or an official dialect like in the courts that aligns to Daniel and the timing that many people that believe the Bible is true give it. Now, some people try to say that a problem is the multiple authors. That's a completely arbitrary argument. There's no support, no evidence. It just says, I decide here as a different author. Um, the, it says the theology is too advanced, and that's also a completely subjective statement. It assumes that theology was not complicated from the beginning, Theology is all um, progressively revealed. Basically, all that are claimed as too advanced usually start in Genesis and usually spans throughout everything that is earlier than Daniel. Some say it has a wrong section, including in, included in the writings instead of the prophets in the Jewish Bible. The writings were considered scripture as well. And he is called a prophet in the New Testament and considered a prophet in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Hebrew Bible, as well as Origen, 254 AD, and Josephus, 90 AD. Now, the concept of straws or grasping at straws, a skeptic's attack is never ending. Past these, it's an issue of the will and heart, not the mind. Historically, Daniel, written about three, I'm sorry, 530 BC, this is claimed in at least 10 places in scripture. History confirms Daniel was written when it claims to have been written. The oldest Qumran scrolls of Daniel is dated as 125 BC. That's its latest, and this was a copy. There's no way they would have had access to his book. The Septuagint was completed in 132 BC, and it had Daniel, and it was completed in Egypt. How did they get it, if it was just released? So we can be pretty confident that Daniel was written when it says it was written. Um, there's not really a good reason to doubt it past, I don't want it to be true. That's not a very good reason. 
So let's look at a handful of these prophecies and show that, again, a very good description is that the Bible is supernatural. Now, we're not going to read all these sections. We'll probably read bits and pieces. Um, if anybody wants to learn more about it, they can listen to the podcast on Daniel, or they can look it up themselves. No big deal. If you have a Bible at home or if you have online, you can get it there. Daniel 7 will be our first section. Um, verses 1 through 6 shows us three beasts, and verses 15 to 18 expands on these beasts. They would be upcoming kingdoms. The first beast is like a lion with eagle's wings, whose wings were plucked, and then the lion was made to stand like a man, and given a man's heart, or can be translated as a mind. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This He's the one who was contemporary with Daniel. Jeremiah 4.7 and Ezekiel 17.3 refer to Nebuchadnezzar as a lion. Lion was common in Babylonian art and on the walls of the city. The wings of an eagle shows his dominance. King of the beasts, lion, and king of the birds, eagle. And at some point, we see in Daniel 4 that Nebuchadnezzar basically was driven down by God because of his pride. Uh, God judges him by allowing him to go crazy for seven years, and he is allowed to regain his mind. But to be clear, this is not prophecy. This was contemporary to Daniel. So it was one of those short-term prophecies. It was happening during Daniel. So it doesn't really help us to see that um, as a long-term prophecy. But it does give us a pattern for others. The second beast was like a bear. It would be the next empire. It would be slow and strong. This would be the Medo-Persian Empire, 539 to 331 B.C. The bear is raised on one side, and we see this in time. In history, we know the Medes were over the Persians, but when Cyrus took the Persians over, this flipped over, and the Persians were over the Medes. The bear has three ribs in his mouth, probably the three major nations that it took over, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. The third beast was like a leopard with four wings, and it's another world empire, Alexander the Great, 336 to 323 BC, who came into power and conquered his empire very quickly in just 13 years. And this is the four wings and the leopard to show its speediness. There are four heads on this beast. And when Alexander died, his empire was given up to his four generals because he didn't have any children. There is a fourth beast, but it has a mixed prophecy that is still future. So we will cover that whenever we talk about the book of Daniel. Okay, let's look at Daniel 8, verses 1 and four, one through 4 and verse 20. They tell us the ram is Media and Persia. It's the same as the bear. Media and Persia were joining while Daniel was alive. One horn for Media and one horn for Persia. And one of the horn came up last, that was Persia, and became higher, as mentioned above. Daniel 8, 5 through 8 and verses 21 and 22 tell us of a male goat flying from the west with a large horn towards the ram. This horn, or king, will take over quickly, but also die quickly. The large horn will break into four smaller horns. The passage tells us that this is Greece. Its first central horn is the first king, Alexander the Great. The Grecian kingdom, quote-unquote, flies, or goes fast, from the west, Greece was west from Persia and completely plummets over them. It took Alexander three years to overcome them. 
Alexander took his empire quickly, and he died from something like malaria at a young age. After he died, his kingdom is split up to his four strong generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, all aligning to scripture prophecy. Daniel 8, verses 9 through 14, and verses 23 to 26 speak of one of the smaller horns. This horn was horrible. It would take over to the south and include Israel. It would claim itself, um, himself as high as God and stop the sacrifices to God. This horn will come about at the end of the empire, and he will have fake power taken by schemes. This horn would die by natural causes, not war or murder. His name was Antiochus, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, um, two fifteen to one sixty four BC. He came from the horn that was in the Seleucid Empire. In verse nine, he was the first king to take over Egypt and robbed them, and had reign over Israel, the glorious land. He did not in any way go toward the west, towards Rome. He gained power through schemes, verses 23b and 24. And he took what did not belong to him. He was not in line at all to be king. History shows us he used schemes to gain the throne, like claiming himself as a co-regent with an infant who was next in line, and then killing the infant after he was king. After his time, the empire begins to crumble in verse 23, so his rule was the beginning of the end for this empire. He attacked the Jewish people because he hated them, at least Judaism. He destroyed Hebrew Bibles and sold the high priest position off. He removed daily sacrifices. He commanded Jews to eat pork, to not circumcise their children, and to worship Zeus or die. The temple was desecrated by this king. He sacrificed a pig, the most unclean animal to the Jewish people, and he plundered the temple. He exalted himself as Zeus against the true God. There is a mentioning of 2,300 days in verses 14 and 26 before its cleansing. This cleaning is still commemorated with Hanukkah. December 25th, 164 BC was the end date. Antiochus IV died suddenly in 164 BC with some disease, not in battle or assassination. Verse 25. One more example, and then we'll kind of close up the world prophecy. Then we'll have another section of prophecy, and then we'll get into different types of evidences. So Daniel 11. Daniel 11 has a huge amount of prophecy, about 135 prophecies. Now, let's look through some of them. Verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Three more kings in Persia. The current king was Cyrus, 550 to 530 BC. Cambyses II, 529 to 522 BC. Pseudo Smerdis, 522 to 521 BC, and Darius, 521 to 486 BC. Then a fourth king would come and be richer than all the previous kings, and this was Xerxes, 486 to 465 BC, who was richer than the rest. This is possibly, probably Esther's king. 
Um, he reigned during the greatest time of Persia's empire and was able to get several hundred thousand soldiers into Greece, 480 BC. He levied great taxes, built a lot, and had a great army. Despite all these, he failed. Verse 3 and 4 of Daniel 11. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has risen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Alexander the Great, again, fulfills this prophecy. His kingdom would be divided into four, and it would be a weaker kingdom because it was fractured. It was not given to his children. It was divided between his generals, mentioned by grace, um, and they constantly fought, all as predicted. And this is just a small part. If we look at the verses 5 to 35, it directly deals with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And again, it is an exact occurrence. And this is confirmed by external historical documents. For example, just a handful. These two were picked out because Israel is right in the middle of their empires. Um, King of the south, the Ptolemies, and the king of the north, the Seleucids. Seleucid I taking over a section from Ptolemy, verse 5. Ptolemy II tries to have his daughter, Bernice, marry Antiochus, and it happened all but the sons she had were disowned, even to the point of showing that Antiochus II got rid of Bernice after Ptolemy II died, and so the treaty would have no effect, again, as predicted. Antiochus II retakes his old wife, and she poisons Antiochus and puts her son on the throne. Verse 6. Prediction of the Battle of Elephants and Raphia and its outcomes. Israel, Israel's takeover of the northern kingdom, by the northern kingdom, sorry. Antiochus IV Epiphanes' rise to ruling through politics and deals with his persecution of Israel, his removal of Passover and his blasphemy of the temple, and more. If you just read it, try to align it to history, it aligns perfectly. This can only be done through a God that knows the future. This cannot be predicted this much exactness by a mere human. All right, so the next section of prophecy is the prophecies about Jesus or messianic prophecy. That's because he's our Messiah, so they're messianic prophecies. Um, there are quite a few about him. I'm just going to go over a couple of them that show there were things prophesied about him that he fulfilled years and sometimes many years later. We'll get even more into these in the section about Jesus. So one of the things that the Bible prophesied about Jesus was that he would be born of a virgin. That was prophesied in Isaiah 7:14, and we see the fulfillment of it in Luke 1, verses 26 to 35. Another neat prophecy about him is that he would be born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied in Micah 5, 2, and it was fulfilled in Matthew 2, 1. His um, triumphal entry is prophesied in Zechariah 9, 9 and fulfilled in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. The fact that he would be betrayed by a friend was prophesied in Psalm 41, 9 and it was fulfilled in Matthew 26, verses 20 to 25. 
Um, another really interesting one is that his hands and feet would both be pierced, would all be pierced. That was prophesied in Psalm 22:16, and we see that it happened in John 20:25. 20, Even the fact that he would die with robbers, that was prophesied in Isaiah 53:12, and it was fulfilled in Matthew 27:38. The fact that none of his bones would be broken was prophesied in Psalm 34:20 and fulfilled in John 19:33. And um, the last one we'll talk about, right? This second is Isaiah 53:9 that prophesied he would be buried in the tomb of the rich. And sure enough, in Matthew 27:57 to 61, we see that that is what happened. A beautiful passage is Isaiah 53, which was, um, I mentioned a little bit of it, but um, more specifically, it was written 700 years before Jesus' birth. The Dead Sea Scrolls have showed us that Isaiah was written at the latest by 150 BC, and this was a copy, which means the original was earlier. Even if we take this very late date, it is still over a hundred years before the event, still showing that it was prophetic messages. In the Bible, there are over 300 prophecies of Jesus. Unbelieving scientists say that for one person to complete just eight prophecies is a one in 100,000 trillion chance. I like an example um, that we've heard that would clarify it. If you were to fill the state of Texas with silver dollars up to two feet deep, then blindfold a guy and have him find the one with the red dot on it, those are the same chances that we're speaking of here. So prophecy is very powerful. Um, it, it can't be faked, basically, but there still are arguments against prophecy. And so let's walk through a handful of these and then we'll move on to more evidences in the next episode. So some people say, well, it's subject to interpretation. Well, nothing is without some degree of interpretation. Even the phrase, this is not subject to interpretation, is subject to interpretation. Now, what we need to look for is the reasonableness of the claim. Is it a claim and does it make sense what they're saying? Yes, with prophecy. In biblical prophecy, the prophecy makes sense, the interpretation makes sense, and the fulfillment makes sense. Another argument is it's too close. Some say they were too close to the data, and so it's biased. Well, we have to be careful with that word. Bias does not equal lying. If there were true, if this is true, no one could speak truthfully on anything because we all have a bias. The person that brings up this objection is biased against the New Testament, and so we cannot trust what they say. This argument falls apart. Someone can be biased towards the truth, and that's okay. We all have a bias. Another argument is these people are just illiterate, so there's no way they could have written this. So there's an issue with the argument. For example, Matthew was a tax collector, so he had to know how to read and write. Mark wrote for Peter and was at least knowledgeable to read and write because he acted as a scribe. Luke was educated as he was a physician. Paul was educated being a Pharisee. 
The rest could have easily learned to read. Just because somebody is illiterate earlier in life doesn't mean that that means that they can't learn to read later on. And even if they could not, it could have easily been dictated to a scribe. That was their whole job, to write down what people said. Another objection is it's a miracle, so it's not true. This basically says if it has a miracle, it cannot be true. So there are at least two issues with this. First, all the other Greco-Roman historical documents had supposed miracles, with very few exceptions. Each document needs to be read and examined separately. Second, it's a circular reasoning, a circular argument. There are no miracles, so any evidence of it is not real because there are no miracles. See the problem? Um, you assume no miracles, and so any evidence that's brought up for miracles, it's not a miracle because you already have the assumption in the beginning. So you're not being true to the test. Another objection is, well, don't other religions have prophecies too? Well, some do. Most don't, actually. But none of them are like this. Other religions have tried to do prophecy and have failed. Their prophecy, if they have any, usually fails. Either it's too general, or it's never fulfilled, or it's not even possible to be fulfilled. And what's crazy is that the Bible has a little bit of an extra layer of that. And we'll deal with that in the next objection, which is other psychics have made prophecies and they come true. Well, most of the times that I've heard this when it's pressed, there's not really any good evidence of this. Uh, psychics give many, 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 many false predictions, which means they're disqualified from God's test of prophecy. God required 100% accuracy 100% of the time. Deuteronomy 8.22. can look it up. Psychics are also very vague and mystical. Despite this, they still have a high percentage of errors. So, none of this applies to biblical prophecy. They are very specific, as we saw within the evidences that we've shown within this episode. They are far back enough that they cannot be fulfilled by the prophet that gave the prophecy. There's no way they could have manipulated data or the occurrence. And it's 100% right. Every single prophecy that should be fulfilled has been. This is great evidence for the Bible.